Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and its Biggs Institute, expanding the horizons of dementia research and advancing comprehensive care. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. I'm Kitty Isley. Last fall, I launched a podcast about how I took care of my dad as he aged. Nothing could have prepared me for becoming a parent to my parent. Okay, Ernest Hemingway, here's your mug that says Ernest Hemingway on it. Okay, good. Be sure to drink your Ensure, and I'll make you a milkshake later. Okay. Becoming my dad's caregiver changed my life. Sometimes it was unspeakably hard. It also left me profoundly grateful. It made me reconsider what makes up a good life and how I could listen to my beloved dad so he could have a good death. I heard the same thing from so many people, that caregiving is one of the hardest things they've ever done, but one of the most meaningful, and that they wanted to hear more, learn more, about this complex, deeply human experience. So we're keeping this podcast going. We're beginning our second season with a new name. I originally called this podcast Demented, because that's how I felt almost out of my mind, trying to keep my dad safe and navigate such complicated options for his care. Some listeners told us they felt demented was a hurtful term. I want to respect that. I don't want anyone to feel offended, especially if you're going through what is such a hard experience. So now, welcome to season two of 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. I was amazed by the response to season one, and if you haven't heard it, I hope you'll go back and give it a listen. This season, we're expanding this conversation beyond my family's story. We'll introduce you to somebody in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease who describes what it's like and how she's planning for her future care. A young woman tells us how she gave up her job to care for her mom. And a MacArthur Genius Grant winner who explains how we created this fractured system of elder care and how to change it. And we're inviting you to share your stories. More on that later in this program. Caregiving turns you inside out. You come out at the end different. That is certainly what happened for my first guest, another daughter who took care of her very famous father. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That, of course, is our 40th president being sworn into office. So help me God. Now, I congratulate you, sir. In 1994, five years after he finished his second term in office, former President Ronald Reagan was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. For the next decade, until his death, his daughter, Patty Davis, was intimately involved in his care. And Patty says it changed her life, too. After he died, I sort of felt like I was finished with Alzheimer's, which, as I wrote in the book, um, seems so naive to me now. Because I don't, I don't think that you are. I think that if you, if you really willingly go on this journey that the disease takes you on, 
it changes you and the lessons that you have learned on that journey continue to seep into your life and affect your life. And I also certainly became more and more aware that that caregivers were not being cared for and were not being paid attention to. For many years after her father died, Patty Davis ran support groups for families caring for people with Alzheimer's. Now she's written a book. It's called Floating in the Deep End, How Caregivers Can See Beyond Alzheimer's. I read Patty's book after my dad died. He had dementia that was related to heart failure, and I still found it so helpful, so comforting. It helped normalize and explain so much of what our family went through. So I was really glad Patty agreed to talk with me from her home in California. There was a moment in the book where I think you, well, much of it resonates with basic practices of meditation and the way that you looked at your dad and others with Alzheimer's was that they're really in the moment. That's the only place they can be is now. And that in a funny way, an Alzheimer's patient, a person with Alzheimer's, is just in that moment when they're not going back in time. Well, even when they are going back in time, that's their moment right then. If they're 16 at that moment, they are 16 at that moment. Um, You're not doing anybody any favors, neither them nor yourself, if you go, no, I'm sorry, you're 80 years old, you're not 16 anymore. To them, that's real. In that moment, that's real. Go with it. You might learn something about that person that you never learned before. Did you have a moment like that with your dad? Do any stand out to you where he might have been somewhere else and you found yourself learning something? I can't think of any in particular. You, you know, um, I I could sort of tell by by look in my father's eyes sometimes how like where he was. I mean, there was an innocence that that would come out that I thought I'm getting a glimpse of the of that young boy, you know, or that teenage and. Uh, I mean, I know in the latter stages when he was bedridden and I, I wrote about this, his he would pick up his hands, he'd be lying there and pick up his hands and, and move them up and down. And one of the nurses said to me, I wonder what he's doing. And I said, he's riding a horse. In English riding, you hold the reins with both hands. He's riding. He's somewhere far away in his head riding. That's so beautiful. And that you spotted it. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I recognized it. And, um, you know, you don't know where someone has drifted off to. Uh, someone in my support group uh, once came in and, and said he felt so awful for his mother. He thought that she was really sad and really lonely. She was in the latter stages of Alzheimer's. She was in a facility. And whenever he visited her, which was every few days, he said she would just be sitting by the window staring out. And and he said she just looks so lonely and so sad. And the people at the facility said she doesn't really um, interact that much with other residents. So he said, so I'm the only interaction that she ever gets. And I said, you have no idea where she's drifted off to in her head. She could be walking on a beach in the Bahamas at sunset with some gorgeous man. And then you show mm-hmm. up and ruin the whole thing. <laughs> You don't know where someone has has gone. For the most part, and there are probably exceptions, but most of the time where someone has drifted off to in the latter stages of dementia, they're okay there. They're pretty content there. And if there is some upset or even some tantrum, it's over in 15 minutes, and 15 minutes later they don't remember it. Mm-hmm. It's always new. It's always, it's always now. Yeah. 
How old were you when you learned your dad had Alzheimer's? I was in my 40s. Do you recall your response? Well, in 1994, I was in a very dark time in my life. Um, I had sold my house at the bottom of the market. I'd lost pretty much everything. I was fleeing an abusive relationship, so I moved across the country to uh, to the East Coast where I knew nobody. And um, I just everything I touched seemed to go wrong. And I really was thinking I didn't want to be here anymore. I just didn't see any reason to go on. And that's the place I was in when I found out that my father had Alzheimer's. And, um, you know, that could have been the last straw. That could have been, okay, that's it. I'm out of here. But instead it had the opposite reaction. It was something bigger than, than my pain. It was something bigger than my despair. And I sort of grabbed onto it as a lifeline because I thought, you know what, I want to show up for this. I want to be there for this and I want to, I want to get this right. Patty Davis, daughter of former President Ronald Reagan. We need to take a short break, but in a moment, Patty talks about how her dad's Alzheimer's diagnosis affected her whole family. This is 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. I'm Kitty Isley. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Bonnie Petrie, host of TPR's Petri Dish. And over the last two years of shows, we've fortified ourselves to make it through each day of this pandemic with knowledge grounded in good science, from protecting ourselves and our families from this virus to understanding the illnesses it causes to learning how to live with our grief. There is still so much to learn, and I hope you'll join us as we continue to wade through these challenging times together. You can listen to Petri Dish, that's P-E-T-R-I-E, wherever you get your podcasts. Most of us find ourselves stepping up to care for our elders within the context of our families, siblings and parents and step-parents and all of it. And it means everyone has to adjust to a new role and a different relationship to each other. It can be very messy. I asked Patty Davis to tell me more about how she got involved caring for her dad, Ronald Reagan, and how she dealt with some fairly complicated family relationships. Well, here's the thing. The family dynamic, whatever it is, is not going to change. I mean, maybe in some maybe some miracles happen in it, you know. I mean, people tend to think that, um, or they want to think that when some difficult, tragic situation happens in a family, that even a family that's fractured will come together and bond suddenly. Not really. I mean, in Lifetime movies, maybe that happens. In real life, not so much. Because every family has its own homeostasis. And People tend to, when, when difficult things happen, people tend to grab onto what's familiar and, and will grab onto the, their familiar roles that they've always played. So if you have a close, cohesive family, then you're still going to have a close, cohesive family when, some, when dementia enters the picture. If you don't, everyone's going to just behave like they always did, maybe even more so, because, because Alzheimer's brings up everything. 
You know, it brings up everything. It brings up everything in you. It brings up everything in the person who has the disease and it brings up everything in families. So, you know, people have said to me, well, you know, I'm the only sibling who shows up and nobody else, none of my other siblings show up. And I've said to them, well, how were things before Alzheimer's entered the picture? Well, yeah, I was the only one who showed up and no one else really did. Okay, so where's the surprise? People are just being who they always were. And my family was a very fractured family. And what I learned to do was look at it differently rather than look at it, and particularly at my mother with resentment, I I learned to look at her with sympathy and with compassion because she really was kind of the architect of our fractured family. And I mean, my father went along with it, but she really was, she was sort of the architect of that. And and then, you know, she created a world of two of her and my father. And then this unfortunate disease enters the picture, starts taking him away from her. And there was no fold of a family that she could rely on. Not that we didn't want to be there, but first of all, no one knew how, because they'd never done it before. And um, she didn't know how to let anybody in. So I, I was there more than anybody else. But that doesn't mean that my mother and I had some suddenly bonded relationship. We didn't. It was very difficult. The lessons that I was learning with my father's Alzheimer's, I then had to sort of apply to her. And that was more difficult than learning them with my father. You did find the lesson or one of the lessons in Alzheimer's and turned it to being tender towards your mother, at least attempting to put tenderness in your heart as you dealt with her, which I felt like, boy, is that an adult lesson or what? I mean, well, that's, you know, Alzheimer's will, will teach you to grow up. I mean, if you allow it to, it will teach you to grow up because like I said, it brings up everything. So, you know, if you find yourself as still the, the resentful 17 year old, who's, you know, parents, banished you when you, I don't know, came out as gay or something like that. Mm-hmm. If, that's, if that's where you revert to, you might want to address that because resentful 17-year-olds don't do very well in difficult situations like losing a loved one to Alzheimer's. So it might be time to really let that one go, you know? And, and I had to say for myself, you know, the girl who never got as much attention from her father as she wanted and the girl who always had this difficult relationship with her mother, you're going to have to grow up. If you want to show up for this and and if you want to learn from this and grow from this, then you're going to have to grow up now. You framed the question and said caregivers confronting this might reframe or, or change this from what should I do with this awful thing that's that's befallen us to how should I be? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm coming into this room with my loved one and I'm, like I said, so that resentful 17 year old or 20 year old or 30 year old, if I'm dragging in the family history and still trying to process that, you're not really showing up for this experience. You know, you're not really opening yourself up to it. Leave that stuff outside. If you're still dealing with it, then find somewhere else to deal with it. Go back into therapy, talk to somebody or just decide it doesn't work for you anymore, right? I mean, that's what I did. 
um, I just went, okay, you know what? I've been dragging this around all my life. It's getting really tiresome and there are more important things here. In 1994, the year that Ronald Reagan was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, he put out a remarkable statement to the nation, a letter saying farewell. He wrote, I now begin the journey that will lead me into the sunset of my life. It was rare for anyone then to acknowledge mental decline, even more unusual coming from a man who was only five years out of office as the most powerful person on the planet. As Patty Davis adjusted to her dad's condition, she spent more and more time with him. And she writes in her book, Ronald Reagan kept his sunny, optimistic outlook, even after a lot of his memory faded, even when it was awkward. Patty described the times she took walks with her dad on the beach and how she handled it when strangers came up to thank him. What struck me was that he was he was so friendly to everyone. And people would say, you know, hi, Mr. Reagan, or hi, President Reagan, or hi, Mr. President. It was always one of those. And and he would always like turn, smile to them and go, hi, hi, thank you. You know, and it wasn't until we'd passed those people in that one day when he said, how do they all know me? And I said, well, you know, you were really well known. You were president of the United States. And he looked at me with very confused eyes. And I I just, my instinct was, this is not going to work to explain to him that he was president or even what the president is. You know, he probably doesn't even know that anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So I I redirected his attention to to the ocean, to the water, and and how we used to body surf together out in the waves. I just changed the subject. You did that once, I thought, very gently and tenderly and, and with great deal of insight when he, I think... He used to go to the went to the office for a few hours every morning with his paperwork, but at one point I think there was a um, Secret Service are driving him and he didn't want to get out of the car in the garage. And you could tell you yourself could understand what was happening, and I thought that was really insightful. And can you talk a little more about that moment? Well, I could and I couldn't. I mean, he was clearly upset. I went up to the office. Someone let me know that he was in the parking garage and he was refusing to get out of the car. So I went down there and he was very upset and he was very frightened and he kept pointing to some of the, the like the doorways in the parking garage and something was frightening him. Something outside of that car was frightening him. And I, I, I don't know what it was. I don't know what he was seeing or, or imagining, but it was very real to him. And I think one of the agents said, well, maybe we should just take him home. And I said, let's try getting out of here and driving him around the block. And then coming back and see see what happens. And they did. And when we came back, it was over. <laughs> whatever it was, whatever had been lurking there that he saw or imagined was gone. And he was okay. So it worked. And I mean, now it's sort of a, a well-known technique because other people just like me stumbled on it. It's like a redirect. That's a word that keeps coming up in my understanding. Like, here's a problem, redirect their attention, and then it usually goes. Yeah. But, you know, that, like I said, it's it's people dealing with a situation in real time that, that has made that now kind of a commonplace technique 
Um, I visited a facility for, for Alzheimer's patients. I think it was in Georgia. And one of the doctors who was showing me around uh, was telling me that in the hallways, they, the hallways were all carpeted. And he said, you know, we didn't want to have carpet and then hard floor because um, it's, this is actually a very typical thing for people with dementia. They get frightened going off of carpet onto hard floor. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, we learned that from family members, from caregivers. I mean, we as doctors didn't know that. I mean, how would they know it? They're not, they don't go home with the people, right? So they, they learned it from caregivers and then implemented that in this facility. You did, and you do in this book, I think of a really beautiful relationship to God, or you're not afraid to talk about that. And I wanted to ask you to, to sort of speak about that here, because for you, at least, that that was there. It was part of your package. The two um, things that really grounded me for those 10 years were, first of all, my belief that my father's soul could not have Alzheimer's. You know, I always say to people, as soon as I say that, that if that doesn't comport with your your belief system, that's fine. But consider the possibility. You don't know it's not true, so you might as well, and it will change how you deal with that person. And the other one was that there is always a different way of looking at things. If people look at a loved one who has dementia and just and say, well, they're not there anymore, which people do sometimes, you've just written off a human being. How about taking a broader view and going, okay, their cognition is going, their memory is splintering, but again, there is, there is a human being there. There's still someone with emotions, with needs, with desires. Now, when I was running my support group, I ran my support group twice a week for six years, I was always very careful about not, you know, sort of bringing God into the conversation too much because I didn't want to, I didn't want anybody to bristle at that. I didn't, I'm aware that there are people who are agnostics or atheists and and might not want to hear about that. And, And I didn't ever want to, you know, make anybody uncomfortable. But when I came to write this book, I thought, well, I, I can't really leave this out. <laughs> I mean, it's such a big part of of how I experienced this decade of my life and and how I got through it that I can't leave it out. I mean, I'm not there to intrude on anybody's belief system, but but you know, this is mine. And <clears throat> when I was a little girl, I most of not most of, but many of my conversations with my father were about God. And I tell the story in the in the book about when we climbed up the hill in the back of our house that that we went up to fly fly kites and and I stood up on my tiptoes and reached my hand up in the sky and asked toward the sky and asked my father how high I would have to reach to touch God. And he bent down and said, You don't need to reach up at all. God is everywhere. God's inside of you. And you just have to talk to him. You know, I learned as a little girl, you just talk to God. You just have these conversations with God. And I don't think that ever left me in my life. I think I I didn't stop talking to God. I definitely, at many stages of my life, stopped listening for whatever that that still silent voice as an answer would be. I think that was um, that definitely is what came back to me in this experience. You know, not only talking to him, but 
shutting up and listening for an answer, <laughs> right, is the other part of that. Or listening when there's no answer and sitting with it. Yes, exactly. If there's nothing, then then don't do anything, right? Then mm-hmm. Then wait until something comes to you. I found it very beautiful. I really did. And I thought it was honest and it tied very much into your relationship with your dad. And I thought that was maybe at the idea of having a soul that doesn't have Alzheimer's. The soul is still there. Yes. Yeah. I used to tell people, and it was going to, I mean, in your dad's case, it was public, it was telegraphed to the world. But I would try to explain to people that my dad is all there, but there are just more layers between him and you right now. You know, it's fuzzier. You may not get the answer you want, or you might just nod and smile. But the person's still there. It's just, you're not going to be able to reach that as easily. Yeah. Yeah, but there are but there are windows, you know, through the disease. And if you if you do consider that that there is a soul in there that can't be ill, then you're going to be alert to those moments when when there's just an opening in the disease, and you you see again who that person is. Maybe it's something they say. Maybe it, maybe they don't say anything, and you just see that you you can see through the disease. That's why I called my support group Beyond Alzheimer's. It's part of the reason I. I did that. But if you if you just think that person's gone, they've disappeared, you're not going to be paying attention and you're going to miss those moments. And they're very fleeting. And how about now that you are not running the caregiving support groups, but you're still very much in this conversation about the caregiver, so much so that you just you know spent time to finish a book on it during COVID, um, not a small achievement. And it's your 13th book. I was dazzled. Yeah. Yeah, I've written more novels than nonfiction, but I I wanted to write this because when I stopped I stopped running the group after six years, and I wanted to take it into another phase, which was licensing it to hospitals. Um, and uh, two hospitals said yes: Geisinger in Pennsylvania and Cleveland Clinic in Las Vegas. And I went to each of them and gave a talk. And um, and then I but I got a number of no's from hospitals, and I was. Uh, Disappointed, but not surprised, because as we said at the beginning, I don't think caregivers are really given enough care. And uh, you know, I still my my vision was to have beyond Alzheimer's be like the AA of caregiver support groups. You know, mm-hmm. meaning like everywhere. Like if you're in Minnesota, you can find a beyond Alzheimer's support group. I, I will only license it to hospitals because there are two facilitators one being from the medical field. And I, I think I think it's something that belongs in hospitals. But, you know, having not been able to succeed in getting it everywhere in hospitals, I thought, well, then you know what? I'm going to write a book about it so then people can carry it with them and do what you did and dog ear it and underline it and, and have it as a reference. Um, I'll put it everywhere that way. Right. It's shocking to me that hospitals wouldn't take this on. It just, it's such a natural, they'd run every other support group. Yeah. Um, the doctor who said to me, Alzheimer's is the least profitable area of medicine. I mean, that kind of sums it up, you know? But you'd think running a caregiver support group with a physician and a fac- or a facilitator of some part from the hospital would be the lowest hanging fruit and the most, most uh, beneficial. Um, the cost is a, a about thirty grand a year for a hospital. That's nothing. That's nothing. That's pocket change, nothing. right? So when when they said to me, you know, it's not in our budget. What I heard was, we don't care enough. That's what I really think they were saying. 
because to them, most of the dementia patients are elderly. There is no treatment. There is no cure. So they're not making any money. Boy, but they're going to make money on the caregivers who come in sick from stress. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I just want to say I'm really grateful for this book. And again, I lost my dad and I'm still learning. And I really, as I read this, I just tore through it. And then I'd stop myself and reread it and think, these are questions I didn't even know to ask or situations I didn't even identify as what was happening in that situation. But you framed it as that may be what's happening in this situation. So I think for any caregiver, whether your loved one has Alzheimer's or dementia or another really serious, complex, life-changing condition, and you're in charge of their care, this book, Floating in the Deep End, hugely helpful. And I just would put it in any library out front and say, start with this. Oh, thank you. Author Patty Davis, speaking about caring for her dad, former President Ronald Reagan. If you liked something you heard in this episode, just tell someone about it. Send them a link or tell your book group or your colleagues. We're trying to reach as many people as possible to really make this a national conversation. And we're not just interested in dementia. If you have an experience caring for an older family member, maybe you found a solution or you made a hard decision about care, we'd like to hear about it. You can send us a short voice memo or an email to 247 at tpr.org. That's the numbers 247 at tlikeTexasPR.org. Hi, this is Melanie Benjamin recording some thoughts about a kind of Ronald McDonald type house for adult children um, of elderly patients in hospice. Uh, So many of us don't live where our parents are aging in place. And many hospice centers, I have found out, don't really provide much in accommodations for family other than maybe a pull-out sofa. So I was thinking it would be so nice to have a place to go back to at the end of the day. I, I want a place where I can just, you know, decompress, be on my own, where I could go and get nutritional meals instead of just having to rely on vending machines. But most importantly, I really, really think it needs to have a bar. I hope you'll come back for our next episode with a young caregiver who's using TikTok to teach other people how to care for a parent. Our show is produced by me, Kitty Isley, and Ben Henry, with editing help from Cindy Carpian and Reka Murthy. 24-7 is a production of Texas Public Radio. Stories like those shared in this podcast inspire the work being done at the Biggs Institute of the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. We are searching for a cure for Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases while providing comprehensive dementia care, online educational resources, and access to clinical trials. Our work offers hope to the more than 55 million people worldwide impacted by dementia. Learn more about a healthier future for aging at uthealthdementia.org.